0: Welcome to Pure Curiosity. This is your host Iris McAlpin and I invite you to join me in this exploration of what it means to be human in our modern world. Here you may find answers but I hope you'll find even more questions and allow curiosity to guide you forward. Let's begin. So hi James. I'm so excited to be talking to you today.
1: Same here. How's it going, Iris?
0: It's good. How are you doing? How's your week, been?
1: You know, my week has been productive. Um, had some good wins this week, so I feel great about that. Awesome. And um, I think, like most of us in the country, the COVID year has, um, you know, put us in a space where we're all kind of being reflective about our station in life at the moment. So, as we get closer to the summer. I found myself thinking a little bit more about what I want to do in the next five years and uh, mm. what my life is like right now, and all those things. So,
0: yeah, I hope that's happening for a lot of people. I, I know it's it is happening for quite a few. I just think it's such these kinds of major events do provide such a unique opportunity for reflection, and so it's it's cool to hear that you're taking advantage of that.
1: Yes, yes,
0: yeah. Well, so. Before we go any further, I would love just for you to introduce yourself to our guests and for them just to learn a little bit about you and your, your story.
1: So my name is James Onwachi, and the last name is spelled O-N-W-U-A-C-H-I. And it's a highly unusual last name, so much that there are only two families in the entire world with the last name. And if you must know... Its literal meaning is, I kid you not, death is your destiny. That is the meaning of my last wow. name.
0: Wow! Oh my gosh, that's so deep. <laughs> I tell everybody it's a philosophical
1: last name. You know,
0: is that why you're a philosopher? Because I mean, <laughs> it's baked in. I think so.
1: I think I think that's it. I was pretty much attracted to answering those kind of philosophical questions. You know, so it just means. You know, everybody dies in the end of life. So that's what essentially the, the name means. But it's pretty unusual. I think some of it is because uh, historically my family, have always known that we are one of the lost tribes, Jewish tribes, mm. families from Nigeria originally. And so um, we've always celebrated Jewish holidays at least early on. But when we didn't, it's funny. My mom would talk about Christmas, and she would say, in our neighborhood, Christmas would be celebrated where – there would be Christmas parties every day for like a week or two. <laughs> <laughs> so instead of Hanukkah, it's like, hey. Just really long Christmas. <laughs>
0: that sounds great.
1: <laughs> exactly. Right now, I'm working as a upper school dean at a prep school in Houston. I've also spent most of my career as a admissions dean or associate dean at four different universities, Vanderbilt University most recently, Oberlin College, Grinnell College and uh, also at the University of California, Santa Cruz. And then prior to that, I actually worked in television news as a news writer and reporter for Channel 2 in Houston, KPRC-TV. As you mentioned earlier, I'm a, a theologian and philosopher, so I uh, studied divinity school, or I went to divinity school at Vanderbilt University, as well as going to graduate school and studying philosophy and film.
0: A man of many disciplines.
1: You know, I'm trying to be not necessarily a jack-of-all-trades or a polymath, but just someone who is really trying to get the most out of uh, my own experiences and, and whatever skills that I bring to the world. I also work as a contributing writer to Newsweek magazine. That's a more recent thing, so yeah, gotten back into my journalistic chops, and um, that started in February.
0: Yeah, well, and that's sort of how this this conversation began. I was so glad when you sent over the first article that you published with them, because we had had these conversations sort of intermittently over the years. And and that gave me just a window into to what you were thinking about these days and kind of your, your thought process about some of the bigger cultural phenomenon that are going on right now. So, Maybe that would be a good place to begin. The first article that you sent me was about what was happening with, with Dr. Seuss and, and your own sort of experiences of of having well, I actually don't even want to go to describe it. I'm gonna let you describe it. But it was a really <laughs> wonderful article and I was Thank you. Yeah, really happy to read it. Do you mind sharing with us a little bit about what you you talked about there?
1: Sure, sure, sure. Thank you. Harris. So in March in early March, I actually had a, a op ed piece published in Newsweek magazine that was about that uh, centered around the issue that was going about in the pop culture sphere as well as the news sphere about cancel culture but specifically centered around Dr. Seuss and how um, Dr. Seuss, the company that puts out the Dr Seuss books will be eliminating some titles that they found to be racially insensitive and probably echoed some bigotry in terms of the wording and particularly the uh, illustrations that were in those books. And of course, you know, when you go to the Twitter sphere, for example, you know, or Twitterverse, as they like to say, <laughs> there are people on one side and people on the other side and people saying, look, Dr. Seuss, I grew up with those books. I love those books. There's nothing wrong with those books. There are others who are just challenging the company's approach to eliminating those several books that they had there and saying, this is all a part of cancel culture and political correctness gone awry. As a theologian, you know, you're always thinking about where people meet religious thought. And when I say religious thought, I don't mean Christian thought or Muslim thought. I just mean religious thought in terms of how we behave as human beings. One of the best theologians ever in modern history, um, Charles Long, you know, wrote that we need to start thinking about religion beyond church walls, mm. so that people engage religion when they walk through turnstiles at the subway. And we need to think about, you know, how people engage spirituality in, the, in that way. And so that's how I was looking at the Dr. Seuss um, issue. And in the article, I basically wrote that when I was a child, My Dr. Seuss was not Dr. Seuss. My Dr. Seuss was Thomas Jefferson in the Enlightenment period. And you got to understand what that means, because as a kid, I grew up in the rough side of Houston, a predominantly black neighborhood. Although there was adjacent to that neighborhood a Latino neighborhood, a Vietnamese neighborhood, and not too far a Jewish neighborhood or Jewish enclave, because I used to go to the Jewish community center after school. And I remember looking at one of the books that my brother had out there. and He's 10 years old than I am. And it was this book about Thomas Jefferson and the Enlightenment period. And so <laughs> what you were saying earlier about me having a uh, philosophical mind at a young age is very much true. And I think that probably had a lot to do with growing up in a single-parent household and trying to find the answers to questions that no one in the household was going to share with me at that time right and so i find this book with dr uh, excuse me with thomas jefferson and the enlightenment period describing the enlightenment period if you don't know is the 18th century early 18th century period in which people were espousing the ideas of freedom within art within literature the music within politics, and also that everyone is a, an individual holistically, right? And so these were just really powerful ideas at that time because the world at that time, if you were to marry, you had arranged marriages, right? You married for practical reasons. You married for financial reasons. You didn't marry for love. Well, the world was kind of changing at that time, and so the Enlightened period was a great part of that. And one of the biggest proponents of the Enlightenment period, or the Enlightenment movement, was Thomas Jefferson, who you know was our third president of the United States. And so I'm reading this stuff, and I'm finding answers, Iris. I'm yeah. enlightened. And I wrote in the uh, article that I literally just started, you know, I was like. This, Thomas Jefferson became, like, my favorite rap artist. I'm just quoting stuff <laughs> that he's yeah. written and that he says about the Enlightenment period, and I'm all about Thomas Jefferson. And I'm in elementary school at this time. And then I read a little bit more about Thomas Jefferson, and I find out that he owned 600 slaves. Mm. 600 enslaved Africans, if I'm going to be quite specific, right? And one of them, he carried on an illicit affair for years and did not let her, you know, did not set her free, you know? And everyone knows that story about Sally Hemings. That's the woman he had the affair with, if you want to call it that. And so I was devastated as a kid. Here I am, African-American kid in a predominantly black neighborhood. My idol is this guy. And he's owned 600 slaves. And I was crushed. Mm. But because of who I am, I accepted, all right, this is what he's done. I can still appreciate the Enlightenment period. And I can still see him as a human being with a few dimensions. Some of them are not so great. And so that's how I took it. You know, that showed that was my philosophical disposition at the time as a kid. And so I just read other things. And I studied other people that were of great interest. And what I ended up writing about in that article was that here's the issue. It's not so much about we're canceling Dr. Seuss. It's not about race is not an important issue, or it's not about political correctness gone awry, as much as it is about how we attach sacredness to things and people that don't deserve Mm -hmm. our sacredness or where we should not apply that kind of sacredness to them. So Dr. Seuss books, in comparison to the things that we should cherish, is sacred, like the memories we have with grandparents, right, or lessons that were passed on from one family member to the next that really espouse who you are as a human being as well as your relatives. Those are things that you should treat with some sacredness. But a Dr. Seuss book that, while it's a creative idea and everything, it's just sold, you know, in a capitalistic, you know, environment and people either buy the books or they don't buy the books. People either like the books or they don't like the books. You know, there have been subsequent cartoons that have been made about, <laughs> about Dr. Seuss characters, the most popular being the Grinch, you know, and we treat them with sacredness. And I understand why some people will attach sacredness to it, because if you were watching that Grinch Christmas story on TV, you were watching it with your family, it was during Christmas time, and there's a lot of sacredness attached to, you know, to all of that in that environment. And my point was that we need to be honest with ourselves that there really isn't something that we should cherish as something sacred. And the same thing with Thomas Jefferson, you know, one of the founding fathers right, of this country. We should not treat him as sacred, but as a human being who creates some great history but also there's some things that were quite questionable in the history of this country, right? That we should learn from. And so I'm learning from that as a child, but I'm also not choosing to treat him in this sacred fashion. Hopefully I think some, some people got something out of it.
0: There are so many things you said that are so interesting that I just, I want to unpack here. First of all, I'm just amazed at the level of complexity you were able to hold in elementary school being able to see you know the humanness and the positive qualities and also the the really dark qualities of this this man that you looked up to so much something that is particularly interesting to me because I was sort of thinking as you were talking about the sacredness, I think. Maybe what's happening is people are conflating nostalgia with with sacredness. It's like yes, they have this lovely nostalgic feeling about Doctor Seuss, which I can relate to. I remember reading, you know, Red Fish, Blue Fish, or whatever the book was, and like Green Eggs and Ham, or whatever. And I liked those books <laughs> when I was little. And maybe, sure, like some nostalgic feelings about that, but but that is very distinct from sacredness. And I think maybe in a world where Many of us are moving away from sacredness. We're moving away from a lot of deep connection. We're moving away from connection to our elders in many respects that we're finding other things to attach sacredness to that maybe don't belong in the same way.
1: Yes, I think that part of, I think what's inextricably linked to sacredness is self-reflection. And we are in a society in which we're not afforded enough time to do self-reflection, nor do we make it a part of our daily habit, right? To do some self-reflection about what our thinking is, um, to be a healthy skeptic, if you will, but also to be honest with ourselves about how we're feeling, you know, to uh, be close to our feelings. I remember one of my favorite philosophers, Elaine de botton said that, you know, when you are depressed, That is the closest you will ever get to vividly seeing and feeling the things that you feel and think, and that while you're in the midst of that depression, you should relish the opportunity just to see so vividly what is going on in your mind and in your heart. And so I just remember that, and I think about when we think of sacredness, also thinking about the things, looking around at what we cherish as sacred and looking at them in a vivid fashion, much like a photographer, or looking at these things through a prism and recognizing much like light passes through the prism of, let's say, a diamond, and it's refracted, and it can go many different ways that we should also think about our ideas about what is important to us, but also more importantly, what is sacred to us, and wish we should just say, why is this sacred to me? What am I really holding on to here? And I'll give you a real quick example. One of my good friends, we were talking about Christmas, and I was sharing this story with him about I was working at a mall uh, when I was in college at the University of Texas, and uh, and I was working at this men's dress shoe store. So it's this high-end shoe store. Everyone's buying these great dress shoes, and it's Christmas time. And on one end of the mall, they have Santa Claus. And it's the Santa Claus we normally see, red suit, gray beard, white guy. But then on the other end of the, the mall, there's another Santa Claus. And the store that's promoting this Santa Claus is an African-American bookstore. And there's this black Santa Claus, gray beard, and there kids around And there became what developed was a small fracas, you know, just parents upset that why are there two Santa Clauses, two different races? My kids are confused. They're questioning things, you know. I can't believe you would do this. And how come anyone didn't check with each other about this stuff? And so it was hilarious to me and my colleagues watching this because we just thought it was silly. But it was also quite interesting to see how people had attached sacredness to what, Santa Claus is, what Santa Claus looks like. And so my friend, who is African-American, he's talking about Christmas and everything. I was like, so do you teach your kids that Santa Claus is real? I'm just joking around with you. He's like, yeah. I was like, man, I can't believe you do that. <laughs> and he's like, why not, you know? He's like, "Santa, was, Christmas is so important to me. He said, I remember... You know, Christmas, every Christmas, I would set up the Christmas tree with my father, and there would be music playing, Nat King Cole, and we'd have the popcorn and all this other stuff. And I was like, that's great, man. That's sacred. I said, Santa Claus really isn't that sacred. Why don't you just tell your kids that it's you buying the gifts? And he's like, I'm not going to do that, James. I'm not going to do that.
0: That's something (laughs) I grapple with, because, man... I just, I don't know if other people had this experience, but when I found out that Santa wasn't real, it was, it felt like deep betrayal. And (laughs) I mean, seriously, it was like one of my, one of like first of many existential crises where it was like, okay, if that's not real, then what else isn't real? 'Cause it's it kind of started me pulling into question all these other things I've been told. And I very quickly realized, okay, Tooth Fairy, Easter Bunny, definitely out. <laughs> like <laughs> but but what else? Like is God out too? Like what else is out? And so it was it was disturbing for me, I have to say. And then there were a lot of issues about like, can I trust my parents? And, you know, all of these things. So, I mean, that was me. So, I don't know if everyone else had that experience. But yeah, it, it is something I actually wrestle with in terms of how I would approach that. But anyway, that's sort of a tangent to your larger point. Like, what I sort of hear you saying, and please tell me if this doesn't track with what you meant to be saying, but sort of like we're it's like you're looking at what's most essential, like what is really the core value in these experiences. And it may not be these things that we think they are, these like emblematic symbols of whatever it is, whether it's Christmas or something else. But it's like these deeper connections, these happy memories that are really what is sacred.
1: Well, yeah, you know, it's, it's you know, sacredness is about divinity, right? Something being divine. Something being anointed, something being tapped as saying, this is spiritual. This comes from other stuff that we cannot describe. This is otherworldly, you know, and all these other things are just artifacts of the world that we've created. But what we attach to sacredness, what is sacred to us is something ethereal, right? And so Santa Claus is wrapped up in some pseudo, you know, Christian religion, right? I mean, Um, in that sense. I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, say pseudo-Christian religion, but to say that when we do think of Santa Claus, you know, we do think about Christianity. And so my friend, he's saying, no, I'm not going to tell them that Santa Claus isn't real. And two weeks later, you know, his kids are like, you know, upset about something that they did wrong at home. And he's like, I'm going to tell Santa Claus, you know, you're not going to get your gifts. Oh, no. And they're like losing their mind about it. And and he's like, and he's like, but you should want to do these things for me. I'm your dad. They're like, I'm not, I don't care if you're my dad. I want to do this for Santa Claus. And that's when he got upset. Mm. And so he told them that Santa Claus isn't real.
0: Oh, no. That sounds so <laughs> sad.
1: He said, "I'm the one that buy- I'm the one that buys your gifts." And so he has these two daughters, and the oldest older daughter's like, "No, no, I don't believe you. This cannot be true." You know, he's she's like echoing Luke Skywalker in Empire Strikes Back when Darth Vader is saying, "Like I am your father." <laughs> he's like, "No, no." The little one is like, "I always knew it was you." <laughs> she was totally cool about it. Oh my
0: god! You know. That's hilarious.
1: But, you know, and, and the whole conversation was ensconced in the idea of like, look, man, you know, like you want to you, you come from a diverse family. If you want your kids to think about things, uh, a multicultural world and not seeing, viewing one group as better than the other, you need to just tell them a, a healthy truth about Santa Claus. It doesn't mean like you shouldn't celebrate Santa Claus anymore. You know, you shouldn't dress up as Santa Claus anymore. Just, just be honest with them. They can handle it. You know, kids just not only do they want to know their truth, man, they just want to level with you. And sometimes as, I mean, we all have been kids at one point in time. You want to be in on the, on the big kid secret too. You know, you want to feel like a little bit of an adult. And so despite the older one being surprised that Santa Claus isn't real, I mean, she's totally fine now. You know, she, she hasn't lost her childhood and she still gets very excited during, you know, Christmas time. But had he not done that, you know, he would have been living this kind of, you know, I don't want to call it a lie, but this kind of facade of all the sacredness that's attached to Santa Claus. You know, so he basically demystified Santa Claus for his kids in a healthy way. He didn't do it in an angry fashion. At least that's what he explained to me. But but that he sat them down and just said, look, Santa Claus is a real I, I I think about what you want and I buy your gifts.
0: Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of like interesting parenting stuff in there that I probably won't go into, but <laughs> something you talked about earlier that that I think warrants more discussion or that I'm very curious to hear you say more about is the idea of like religiousness outside of what we traditionally think of as religious institutions and how that shapes our thinking culturally and so I don't even know where to begin with that, but it's something that you broached and I would just love to hear you say more about that.
1: Sure. Well, a good quick example I can give you um, has a lot to do with college admissions, what I did, right? And if we're really honest with ourselves about the whole college process for people who applied to college, have been accepted to college, been waitlisted at college, been denied by college, students view the college process as not only I want to get into my favorite school or my dream school, but that if you do accept, get accepted by this school that you like a lot, or this dream school, that you are anointed. Think about how we feel about Ivy League schools, yeah. that you are anointed and you are you are legitimately intelligent now.
0: Right. And no one
1: can tell you that, despite the fact that you were intelligent before before that letter came and said that you have been accepted to Harvard or to Stanford or to MIT or any of the other schools Northwestern Duke you name it Rice University. There is a sacredness that we attach to the college process there, and there is an anointing that takes place, and that's about religion being a part of that. There isn't some minister that's working with your kids about the college <laughs> process or anything, but it's what over you know the years we have built up in the admissions process is that you were chosen. This one school found out something about you. And, and, and I'll give you another quick example too with regards to this. I remember the first year I worked in admissions, college admissions, and my supervisor said, he was a dean, he said, when you go travel, don't tell anyone you're a college admissions officer. I was like, why, uh, you know? So when you're on a plane, Don't do it because you're just getting wrapped up in a conversation you won't be able to get out of. And so I just kind of took it lighthearted. I was like, you know, whatever. I'm a friendly guy. I like to talk to people on a plane, you know. (laughs) And so I'm on a plane flight and I'm heading to one of my territories I cover. And invariably the person next to me asks, hey, so what do you do? And I tell him. And then all of a sudden these questions just come out about, The college process, what can I tell my son? What can I tell my daughter about this? You know, then he starts regaling me with stories about his college process. And he wants to know if I can help him understand why he was chosen. You know, right? Yeah. And and he's like, and everything he's telling me about it is about dreams. It's about, it was destiny that I was supposed to go to this school. And I wonder what they saw in me. And I never knew why. And he remembered his college essay, what he wrote and everything. And um, I basically had to be a a college counselor for the entire flight. (laughs) And I learned my lesson after that. (laughs) But what I left thinking was, we as Americans, we do touch a lot of sacredness to the college process, a lot of destiny, right? A lot of divinity about being anointed, you know, and so that's a place, for example, where we are. Engaging religion, and we don't even know it.
0: That's so interesting. Well, and it made me makes me think about. I want to say it's Yuval Harari who who writes about this, but I know a lot of people have approached this subject. But just how religiousness is so deeply embedded in in who we are as a species, and now that that's beginning to break down in certain ways. I mean, it, it's certainly not in the sense that plenty of people are still religious in a traditional sense, but more and more people aren't. And so what you're pointing to, it just makes me think that we're finding it in these other ways. It's like, okay, maybe I'm not, you know, a Presbyterian, but I went to Yale (laughs) and that becomes, or, you know, maybe I'm not religious, but I'm a scientist. And so that becomes a religion in its own sense. It's just an interesting question. Like, is this just, being human that we we seek this kind of connection to sacredness and and if we don't find it in a more traditionally spiritual sense then we'll create it in other ways.
1: Well think about think about this. One of the things that makes sacredness such a wonderful thing is that it's comforting. Yeah. And those questions that we ask are really centered around the big question that we will never be able to answer, right? And that is, why am I here? <laughs> yeah. And so that sacredness is about saying, well, I can't answer this question, but I feel like because of this happened and that happened, that this is just my destiny. This is what I'm going to be. This is fate. It was supposed to happen this way. You know, we do that with love. We, you know, we do that also when it comes to, Finding the right job right and being happy and excited about that you know we find that with uh we do that to ourselves when we find a lucky penny you know <laughs> on the sidewalk or something, and we think wow my the rest of my day is gonna be better and that's not any it's not based on anything scientific that if you find a penny on the sidewalk that you're gonna have this good luck the rest of the day or if you find happen to find twenty dollars somewhere, you know, <laughs> <and> you're, <laughs> that you're gonna have good luck state, but you start thinking this could be my day. Think about the spirituality we attach to something as <laughs> as antiseptic as lottery tickets.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: And and the numbers that we write in that we bubble in to say, These are my numbers that are that's gonna it's gonna make it happen. So we're we are engaging Religious thought, spirituality in different areas of our lives. We just don't think of it that way, Mm. but it's there.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. And I guess I'm curious how you would distinguish, and maybe there's a lot of overlap, but spiritual thinking from magical thinking.
1: Spiritual thinking, magical thinking. I don't know if people think there is much of a difference. I don't know if we ever really drill down that way i mean maybe when it comes to watching something you know in a pop culture sphere like movies or reading a book like harry potter stuff you know i don't think anybody would ever think like there was some you know some something ecumenical happening (laughs) you know um in harry potter books or harry potter films you know but i don't think people think that deeply about it except when it comes to fate you know
0: yeah that makes sense well, this is sort of taking a left turn, but I really want to make sure we have time to talk about the second article that you wrote about cancel culture, because we had a, a brief conversation about this before, and I was really interested in your, your take on it. So how do you conceptualize cancel culture?
1: <laughs> cancel culture, I think right now the term itself is being loosely thrown so much by politicians, and just by everyday people, you know, in social media that I think it's hard for most of us to feel that we all have centered on the same definition of what cancel culture is. I think what we kind of all centered on is the outcome of cancel culture, right? That in a short amount of time, somebody has been tried, convicted, and been given their punishment. And we don't like it. And there's some people that do like it, depending on what side you are on the, uh, the of the argument regarding that, that individual. So that's one thing I think we uh, agree on about cancel culture. And when we talk about cancel culture, my idea about cancel culture is this, is that let us look at cancel culture, not so much in the sphere of, the, of our everyday world, but in the sphere in which it really responds to with regards to time, and that is in social media. And within social media, everything is operate on a time that's mercurial, right? So the clicks, the responses that people can give you, that's all very fluid. That's all very quick. It's not something that's meant to be meditated on. It's not something meant to be deliberated on, you know? People just are exchanging ideas at a very fast pace. So cancel culture, when we put it on that kind of time scale, I think we begin to better understand that what it really is about is, as I described, it's about fast food closure. It's about how we feel in our day. We find out about some topic or some individual who's done something that people are upset about. And we quickly choose a side and there are people calling for that individual's head or for the person to be fired or the person to lose their sponsorship or whatever have you. And we don't wait for six months for a result. What's embedded in cancel culture is that everyone implicitly knows things are supposed to happen in a matter of days. Yeah.
0: So this person <laughs> is supposed
1: to minutes. This person is supposed to lose their job, yeah. right? And things are supposed to happen in an immediate sense. There is supposed to be a result, a conviction, if you will, or no conviction. But we find out something, and then the great thing too is that people move on, and you don't hear about that topic anymore, or you don't hear much. No one ever circles back to really found, find out what happened to so-and-so, unless it's CNN or some news publication or decides to do something. And a, a quick example would be Amy Cooper, the woman who was with her dog in New York City in Central Park, and she got into an altercation with this African-American gentleman who also had his dog, and he would just tell her, you should leash your dog, as the rule says, in Central Park, and she got upset You know, I don't have to. And she said, "I'm going to call 911 and tell them them that you're assaulting me." And he was, you know, more than you know, not even several feet, but yards away from her, to where clearly that was the case. So she falsified a report. She did call 911, said there's a uh, black man assaulting me, and everything like that. So, and he was filming the whole thing, and his sister—it wasn't even him. His sister uploads the video on twitter and it goes viral right
0: that's interesting i didn't know it was his sister that did that it
1: was his sister it was his sister and gentleman's name was um, oddly enough his name was christopher cooper and her name is amy cooper but they're not related at all you know and and i remember watching this as soon as it hit and i'll tell you iris that by the end of the night her company it was this franklin investments company they had already contacted her and released a statement that said, we are looking into this. Because hours beforehand, people were jamming the website and their call line and leaving messages upon messages to where the actual website for the firm crashed. So that's cancel culture. It comes fast and it comes furious, right? So." The next day, she loses her job. People got what they wanted there. Then people wanted her dog to be taken away from her.
0: Oh, interesting. <laughs> and, I didn't hear that angle. I heard about and it the it did job. happen.
1: It did happen.
0: Really? They took
1: her dog away from her for a while. She did end up getting her dog back. Wow. But think about it. No one's really talked about Amy Cooper since that time. She's gone through her sensitivity tra- uh, racial sensitivity training. What she opted for, she's been done with that. She stayed out of the limelight, out of media. And, you know, to his, you know, credit, you know, Christopher Cooper was like, you know what? I didn't want all that stuff to happen to her. Oh, interesting. And so when the district attorney asked him to come to their office, to his office, to give a deposition about what happened and everything, he refused to they had enough information based on what they saw to be able to still carry on the charges they had, which is falsifying a report to the police. But to me, that's an example of, and this is not about right or wrong, like what happened there. I think we kind of understand clearly what was wrong there. Yeah. But I think it's an example of how quickly you can be forgotten when you are the subject cancel culture and how people forget and they move on. But in that moment of that intensity If you are living in it or if you're a big part of it, commenting on Twitter or Instagram or anything, it is the topic. It is on the marquee.
0: Right. Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, that was a case where I remember feeling really angry that she had done that and that she deserved some kind of punishment for sure. Like, you're putting someone's life in danger for reasons that. I mean, she just, it seemed like she was just sort of pissed off about her dog and she was that entitled to like, then put someone's life in danger because they were inconveniencing her about her leash. Like that's pretty bad, but it's just interesting to see how people respond to that. Almost like, I guess my sense of it is that there is so much lingering anger about so many injustices that have happened over so many years And when something happens very tangibly, it's like, okay, I can't do anything about all of these horrible things that I've observed happening and all of these injustices that I've seen, but I can go after this person right now. And like you said, there's kind of this rapid fire, fast food closure experience maybe that comes from that where it alleviates some of the pain of of all of those other loose ends that haven't been tied.
1: Yeah, you feel like you got it right Right. this time. You feel like you won. You feel like, okay, the good guys were this time. Or maybe you're feeling a little bit, I don't know, salty, right? And you're like, somebody finally got their just desserts. Somebody finally got their punishment. Because I go to this job every day and my supervisor treats me this way. And no one listens to what I say about that. But this person got something. So the world is fair, at least for that moment. So it's fast food closure. You know, it's like we go through our drive through, we get that closure, and we've moved on. But then after a little while, we're just waiting for the next one because we really haven't been satiated. So that's why I call it fast food closure.
0: That makes sense. And I think, yeah, my biggest concern with cancel culture is mostly that I'm not sure – that it actually serves its own objectives in the sense that is that the best way for the person being counseled to actually learn how to do better? My experience, and I mean, this is not my area of expertise, so take everything I say with a grain of salt, but I guess from what I know about trauma and, and development, shaming people into change doesn't ever work in that context. So I'm imagining it doesn't work well in this context either. I would agree. Yeah. I mean, justice obviously needs to be administered if someone does something wrong. And I guess, and this is like a bigger conversation about how we administer justice in this country, because I think the way that's being done is really problematic as well. But I guess my hope for humanity in in a more broad sense is that, we can help each other compassionately learn to do better so that we can be better together. And yeah, I just don't see a lot of that happening.
1: Well, not at least not in social media, just because um, we can all hide behind these um, avatars. And interestingly enough, there's a book written by a Stanford professor. The book is called virtually you and the name is leaving me his actual name. Uh, but. One of the things that he posited is that we have to be careful about how we engage social media because it is creating these electronic ids, right? So this is going off the ego and the Id. these electronic ids within us that have a lot to do with the social mores that we've been socialized with in the world from the time that we were born, right? So social mores as simple as if you can't say something nice, don't say Anything, right? And that's when we're facing people face to face. Or when you're talking with someone, you look them straight in the eye, you know, or you are looking in their direction, right? These are just small social mores that we've kind of been raised with, you know, that we just kind of understand. It seems like it's given to us at birth, but it isn't. But we just understand because we watch everyone else do it. But when you get on social media, there's an avatar. And that anonymity, the doctor says, is. What frees us from some of these social mores? So now I will say what I really wanted to say to you, you know, that wasn't nice, you know?
0: Yeah, in the most unfiltered language possible, too, And often (laughs) cases. Yeah,
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, or, you know, the other thing that social media has changed, he's talking about it creates this other electronic kid, is we now want what we want more than ever, really? You know, that's, that's, we're not interested in, listening to other ideas. So you can go on to a search engine and you can have my Google or my MSN, you know, or my Yahoo page where it's just tailored to your interests. It says what city you're from, what's the weather like in that city, what kind of music you want. Even Pandora, you know, famous Pandora, like you can listen to music based off of one song that you really like. And it'll play music based off of an algorithm that says these other songs are just like, so we think you'd like it as well. If you go on Netflix, you know, they're using an algorithm to determine, all right, let's just show this individual these movies that you would really like, and we'll give you some ratings attached to that. So we're not even trying to, when we're on social media, we're not even trying to listen to other ideas because we've got more comfortable with, I just want what I want. I want to see the world that I've created, and that's about it.
0: Yeah something that i do find a little concerning about social media and just the sort of fast food culture in general that we live in a chemist named hamilton morris was talking about this on a podcast that you know historically when we were consuming information we were often consuming what what were considered the classics you know we were reading articles that had been through some kind of review system There was like a a tried and true, or at least like some kind of testing to see if content that was being generated was factual and could stand the test of time. Now, most media and most content that people are consuming is stuff that's been released within the last 24 hours. So there's no time testedness. There's no filter. It's just people, you know, proliferating whatever ideas that they have and I kind of alluded to this, like this moving away from respect of our elders, like we're not even respecting older material. It's like, we just want the newest thing. And I'm not saying that's like always bad progress and innovation are great, but there is something a little unsettling about that for me.
1: Yeah, I think so too. I think it's, I think that social media, see, we still like to think of social media as this other sphere, but, it's honestly encroaching upon real everyday life too, right? And so that's changing our conception of time and how things should be resolved and how soon we should have things. So, you know, we, we've we always dealt with immediate gratification, right, as human beings, but we're really dealing with it like right now, wanting things at a certain time. I mean, just think about how upset we were as people and consumers during COVID, at least the start of it, and it came to ordering things. <laughs> and things could not come fast enough from Amazon or other outlets, what have you, that were being mailed to us and, and orders being backed up. I mean, we were kind of really showing our true colors there for a the moment.
0: Yeah. I think we have gotten very accustomed to getting what we want when we want it, which is very quickly. <laughs> and and that's unfortunate It's interesting, like being in the mental health field, I think sometimes people expect that from mental health treatment as well. It's like, oh, like, can't you just fix me in like a couple sessions? I mean, people don't exactly say that, but I think we are so used to that. And then there are people who kind of prey on that in the mental health space too and are like, oh yeah, I'll I'll get you done in like a week, which is typically not a thing. But, yeah, I think we're, we're just yeah. so, we're so used to that. I mean, if we look at, at nature, so many beautiful things require so much time. If you look at a, like a beautiful redwood tree or something, it's just, there's nothing instant about that. But that's part of what makes it really magnificent.
1: Yeah, we forget that we are learning so much in the time that we're building something or enduring something right Yeah, and we, we worry more about the outcome you know the one thing you know we're talking about all these different subjects the one thing that i i believe personally that is good i'd like to get your thoughts about this about cancel culture is that is what's good about you know the internet is that it amplifies voices right yes. and so cancel culture is giving voice to people who perhaps would not have much of a voice about certain things, no matter how innocuous they are, or how important they are. That I can appreciate on some level, like what we we're sharing about the uh, the incident with Christopher Cooper and Amy Cooper. Who knows how often that unfortunate, you know, incident has been duplicated, right, in the everyday lives of people? But we were able to see it because someone got video of it. And people were able to give their thoughts on it, and it made them reflect on things regarding race. But also, uh, for those who have issues with cancer culture, about when should we say, all right, that's enough? Or, you know, we're going for somebody's job, we're going for their livelihood. I mean, it's one thing that they wanted her to be fired, and that happened. And then but they wanted her to lose her dog
0: (laughs) yeah that's like i i'm surprised i didn't hear about that because i my ears are usually tuned into any and all animal related news but i didn't hear about that and yeah that's pretty that's pretty fascinating i i think that is what is so challenging it's hard to know where the line is and like and i guess that's why historically we have defaulted to a system where you know things do take time like we have time to deliberate there's a judge there's a jury like there's a little bit of room to really look at all the facts and kind of figure out okay what is the best approach to this and and obviously that has significant flaws the way it's been handled historically but i think the spirit at least part of the spirit of that is good in the sense that You know, sometimes we need time to to deliberate and not just act on our impulses and and act always in anger. And so that that aspect certainly can be missing when it's like this mob mentality on social media. But I'm I'm really glad that you brought up the point about amplification because many people, I mean, like you said, I I, that is certainly not the only time something like that has happened. And it, it is important for our attention to be
1: brought to that? No, it totally is important. I think it's important for people to be able to um, express themselves. And and that's the nice thing, as I said before, about, you know, cancel culture is that we're hearing all these voices, no matter how vitriolic they are, or how sensible they are, or really how, you know, ambivalent they, they may feel. You know, maybe sometimes we could be Upset about how ambivalent people are about certain issues, you know. Um, but the closure, I think, is is what is so interesting that, that you know, because it, it's not real closure, but it's momentary closure, and it's. But to me, that closure really mimics more of it's like a, a feeding, if you will. Right, you know. I've been satiated. Now, this person has been vanquished. <laughs> You know, and after a little while, you know, maybe I get upset again about something that's going on in my life. And then there's this other person that's in on Twitter that's just getting harangued. And I'm I'm ready to go after that person, too.
0: I'm curious what your take is on on what's needed for people to experience actual closure. Or maybe I can ask you more specifically what's helped you find that in your past.
1: Well, I guess for me, closure is something that takes a long time so i came from a single parent household and my father left my family when i was when i was young when i was still in elementary school and never had any contact with him after that for a long time he never called to see how you know how i was doing or how my siblings were doing you know i had five uh four siblings you know i was the fifth child, not in that order, but the fifth child. And I remember saying that you know what? And this is I said this in the middle school. I said that for the rest of my life, I'm gonna be a self-made man. And this really came true one day. This is a you know, going back to middle school, so eighth grade dance. It was called the you know, eighth grade dance, grade eight dance, right? The first time that I actually asked. You know, a girl to a dance, and I'm in eighth grade. My mom, who is just a medical assistant at the time, saves up her money to get me a suit. And I'm, you know, I'm looking pretty spiffy in this. I'm not gonna (laughs) lie. It wasn't Brooks Brothers, but it was, it was nice. Right? I had a nice red tie. I had a dark blue suit, and I was. Getting ready, I mean, there there was just a lot of pageantry in the household in terms of uh, the spiritual feeling. It's very exciting, like hey, doing this. And so I get my tie and I go to the bathroom to put on my tie, and I look in the mirror and it hits me for the first time. I don't know how to tie a tie, Eric. You know, Iris, mm-hmm. and I don't have a father to go to to show me how to tie a tie. And I go to my mother. And I look at her and she said she could just tell something's wrong. And I said, mom, do you know how to tie a tie? And you could just see my mom's eyes. Well, she's like, I knew that question was going to come. I don't know. And I grew up in a family with three sisters and my brother was away at college. So I was like, so I, 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 even when I think about it now, I'm, I'm taking myself back there and She's like, I don't know how to tie a tie. No one knew how to tie a tie. And everything flooded back about what it meant to be, you know, a young boy without a father because I had just suppressed all of that up until that moment. I kept upset, quietly upset, and my mom was trying to console me, and I said, I just want to go out. So I walked outside, and that's when I told myself, you know, you need to accept that. You're always going to be a self-made man. You're going to have to learn how to be a man. But this is the great thing. You get to define it now for yourself, and you can be better than your father. So I looked around. I was living in an apartment complex, and I swear to you, Iris, I just knocked on some random door, and a gentleman open the door and he, of course he didn't recognize me. I don't know who he is. And he, and he sees me in the suit, <laughs> no tie. And I'm holding a tie in my hand. And I said, excuse me, sir. Um, I don't have a father. Do you know how to tie a tie? And he looks at me and goes, sure, sir, Let me show you. Aww. So he ties it for me and everything. And I go to this dance. I have a good time. And till this day, I tie my tie the exact way he showed me just to honor him. And it's sad because I didn't even get his name. But that's what I remember. And even with those kind of experiences, they've helped along the way. I'm still trying to find closure about the loss of my father. And years later, I did know one thing, and I'm glad I did this. I said, I will never be able to have a good relationship until I go see him. So, years later, I go, this is uh, 2007, no, 2006. I go see my father for the first time. I go, I fly all the way to Nigeria. Wow. And I go see him, and I meet, we meet. And I tell him in a very calm, thoughtful way about how I have lived and what I've experienced, and he's very proud. He's like, oh, you've gone to this school. You're doing this. You're doing great. I would hear about you from your uncles and blah 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 blah. And so, I, you know, but I did ask, hey, why did you leave? And did you ever think about us, right? And I knew that that was important for me to do was to go see him. And that was part of, I don't know if you want to call it closure, but I put a lot of things away after that meeting and I'm as close to closure as anyone can get. But even now, you know, as, you know, a guy in my forties, I still think about, man, I still feel like I'm walking with a limp sometimes about being a man in this world. Mm -hmm. And when I have questions about what to do, I have learned and again, this is why I love philosophy. I go to my philosophy books. Sometimes I go to my friends, but sometimes my friends are just also locked in some other <laughs> barroom <laughs> knowledge that, <laughs> that somebody else passed along. And I can see right there. I was like, yeah, I appreciate it, Jimmy, but I'm going to go ahead and pass on that. You know? So I think closure is about confronting stuff.
0: Yeah, it's a really beautiful story. Thank you. And I think it's true. A lot of people I think are afraid to to go through those steps to really confront their past, to confront the grievances that they've had or the challenges that they've had and true closure, which you're right, like it may be this ever unfolding process, but it's harder, one. You can't just get it in a moment through a tweet, but it sounds so meaningful and sacred.
1: You're right. It's about the courage, right, to face things. But even more than that, you know what's really important, Iris, is the patience. Yeah. is to see and accept that closure is an arc. It's got a story arc. It's not... Something that if you go see this individual, this psychiatrist, this psychologist, they give you these steps, you can be done. It's not a pill that you take. It's, <laughs> um, it's not a routine. You're not going to get it by, you know, um, going to the gym and just pounding away at, you know, your your problems. You do have to confront the issue and how it's manifested itself in your life, which is what I was doing when I was meeting with my father, is like now I know that I truly am. I knew I was better than him, but now I really know that. And more importantly, now I know that I didn't miss out on as much as I wanted. I still wanna have a father figure, but now I understand that I have learned so much and I've gained so much knowledge that you know I can be my own man like i did what i what i set out to do to be a self-made man that made me really proud of myself right
0: thank you so much yeah that's really moving
1: thank you i appreciate that
0: and i feel like as a place to to wrap up i mean you've just shared so much i almost feel like maybe i don't even need to ask this question but i'm still going to (laughs) what is it right now in the world that makes you hopeful
1: there's a lot i look at artwork and i feel hopeful yeah i feel hopeful when i you know greet somebody and and befriend them and i make a new friend but i will tell you another quick story what makes me hopeful is that i i'm always observant about the little things that people do that matter so much. Tenth grade. I'm in a car with a group of my friends. There's four of us in this car. We're all young black male teenagers. And we're in this hoopty.
0: <laughs> That's a term. Car. I, heard a in a while.
1: <laughs> I know, right? Oh, I know, right? But it's there. It's there. I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go there. I'm gonna date myself. <laughs> I'm in this hoopty and we're driving. My friend is driving. I'm in the passenger seat, and we get to this uh, major intersection, stoplight right near the freeway. And, you know, when you drive and you're at a stoplight, some of us, not all of us, will look to one side, maybe look to the other side, see who's driving. Just something that happens. You don't even think about it most of the time. And so my friend does this. He's driving, and he looks to his left, and he sees this white couple in the car. And in the passenger seat of that car is a uh, white woman. And when you're looking at the other driver, usually you try not to have your eyes locked, right? Because when you do, you just try to turn around. <laughs> so that happened, but their eyes locked like right at the same time, just like in the movies. She's looking at him. He's looking at her. And he just turn around. And my friend is turning around. She's turning around. But then we hear the click of the door. She clocks her door. Mm. And we're like, Oh, come on, man. You know, and we're just driving to go to the movies to see a Mel Brooks film, Life Stinks. (laughs) So (laughs) So we're gonna go see Life Stinks and this happens and we all raise up our hands like, Oh man, and so like the husband sees what's going on and the light turns green and so they drive off, we drive off. We go to the movie theater, it's a big parking lot, we go check out the movie. And Iris, we all walk back. We're cracking jokes, thinking about what Mel Brooks said here and there blah blah in offline, the film. And there is something on the windshield of my friend's car, and it looks like it's a note. Mm. So we take the note out, and it's from the guy,
0: oh, wow. the
1: husband of the woman in that car. And he writes this thing. And I'm paraphrasing. Hi, I am the gentleman that you saw in the car with the woman and my wife was the one who locked her doors after seeing you guys. And I want to tell you that I'm so sorry that happened. I was very upset. You know, that's not who she is. And I know that's not who I am, but I was very upset. And I was saddened by that. And I came here because I want you to know that I value a world in which we no longer will see color as a divisive issue, and that we will just see our own humanity, I don't have much, but I do have these gift cards to go to this restaurant. It's a really good restaurant downtown Houston. It's for you guys. Thank you, sir. Hope you forgive me. Wow. He leaves this note. He goes searching for this car through this huge parking lot and leaves this note and those gift cards for my friends and I. And do you know, Iris, till this day, I still have that gift card. It's laminated and I put it in my wallet. So it goes everywhere with me. And whenever I feel upset about something in the world and I need some inspiration, I need to know that there's good things that happen in the world and that there is hope, as you were quizzing before. I pull that out and I know.
0: That is a really good note to end on. (laughs) Thank you, James. (laughs) it's been a delight talking to you truly so
1: yeah same here same here thank you so much